door, yeah. You can turn anywhere in Hebrews. We're going to... I'm calling these several messages. This is our third since we've come back face-to-face. A prelude to Hebrews 8, 1 to 10, 18, which is our next section in Hebrews. And I think it's one of the most important sections of all the Word of God. And it kind of does a complete circle for me because when I first came down here in 1978, the middle chapters of Hebrews was almost my central message on the finished work of Christ, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. And so it's come full circle in 44 years or so. For those of you that haven't been with us yet and are here for the first time since we've returned to -to face-to-face on Sundays, Wednesdays will continue for a little while longer online, and I'm grateful for the men who have stirred up their gifts and have stepped in as I've been stepping up my study. We, you'll notice that we don't have an offering anymore. We don't have a special section of our service dedicated to that, though there are places in the hallway where you can contribute if you want. We've always depended on the Lord and his generosity, and he's always made that generosity known through his people, and that's what's kept us afloat, kept me from working at another tent-making job, which I was very willing to do from the very beginning, but in fact, I tried it for one day and failed miserably, and um, I think I forgot how to paint, (laughs) so, but... So we're having these opportunities for you to give. I've honestly been always kind of squeamish about having offerings because it's sort of like you feel like you're doing a tap dance in the street and passing the hat as somebody to give money. And that's not the way it is at all. It's a totally free will offering. Everything that God gives and everything that God does is free. Everything that we can offer you, and we have silver and gold, we have none, but we offer you the word that God has given us the silver and gold of his word. And so the verses are accompanying those places where you can give if you want. This takes away a lot more, I think, embarrassment on people's positive volition or negative volition because you don't have to give. That's the whole point. And we only allow and only desire anyone giving if they're highly motivated to do so, and they can do it with what the Bible calls hilarity and total carefreeness. So that's a new element, I guess, of our study. Also, we want to keep reminding you that there are, there's a need for workers in our Sunday school and still, right, Will, and for the toddlers and little children, nursery, And if you have inclination and gifts, or even the inclination without the gift, you probably have the gift of helps, please feel free to sign up at the tape table. No one is going to be taken from receiving all the messages from here as a result of their co-laboring together with us in that very important sphere. It's very rewarding for the teaching of the children they have a lot to face in the upcoming generation, and we want to arm them with the shield of faith and the full armor from God 
more now than ever. So please consider it. Consider it prayerfully. It is, as Will said, it's a calling, and it involves giftedness and willingness. And so consider it, prayerfully consider it, and you might feel a nudge from the Holy Spirit. All right, now we're face to face with the obedience of Christ. Well chosen song today, Vicki. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The whole series that began on February 5th of 2020. That was kind of an odd year, I think. Something happened, or a couple things happened. A lot more things are happening now. February 5th, on a Wednesday night, we began the series called Hebrews 2020 with the intent to see Jesus with 2020 spiritual vision. And we see Jesus from Hebrews 2.9 was the place where we selected the title. So turn your eyes upon Jesus is what we do every time we come here. And it's for that reason we're here. Beholding his face as in a mirror, we're changed from one degree of glory to the next during this time in between two great alterations. That's why we're here. And as I said before, meetings like this where God's people meet and do things decently and in order, and they do so with a priority to the word of God, is probably the only order in this chaotic time of history. And so this is extremely important. Face-to-face with the obedience of Christ, part one. And as I've said two times before, a lot has happened in the past two and a half years. Most of you have grown splendidly in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if not all of you. And... Not many of you have changed physically, but you've sure been been transformed to another state of glory. And there are those who were with us before we started on our absence that are not with us today, but they are with us in our heart, they're with us in spirit, and they are blessed among all of us by being face-to-face with our Lord Jesus Christ and still part of our phalanx. And so we're grateful and grateful for their memory. Karl Barth, whom you hear me mention quite often, if you've listened lately, in his two volumes of Church Dogmatics, in which he takes up the theme of reconciliation, two volumes each this thick on reconciliation, gives you an idea how important the topic is. He does a remarkable thing there, and it took me a few months to really see what he was doing there, and I I have a lot more to research and investigate with Barth. It's my last stand as far as theological study, I think, his writings. Though I haven't thoroughly investigated these two volumes yet, I've read enough to appreciate what he did. He formed much of the doctrine of the reconciliation based on an indirect exegesis of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, as it's called, in Luke 15, 11 to 32. He did it, again, on an indirect exegesis. He arranges much of his content around two vast topics, 
on the doctrine of reconciliation. The first one is the Son of God's way into the far country, which, if you remember, has notes in the prodigal son. The Son of God's way into the far country. And then the second great part of that is the homecoming of the Son of Man. The Son of God's way into the far country where he secures our eternal redemption. And the Son of Man's homecoming or the homecoming of the Son of Man. Both of these are great elements in the parable of Jesus of the prodigal son. And I think I'll be bringing much more on this. The sun hasn't fully risen for me on how Barth constructed his doctrine, but I'm pretty sure of his broad outline, and it's revolutionary and astonishing. Nobody, in, as far as I've read or seen or even heard about, has gone further than Karl Barth in disclosing Jesus Christ and the meaning and reality of him. The way of the Son of God into the far country deals with the incarnation of the eternal Son of God and the Son of Man returning is where we pick up in Hebrews. So the way of the Son of God into the far country deals with the incarnation of the eternal Son of God and the fulfillment of his visible historical mission which required his humiliation and his atoning death. The homecoming of the Son of Man refers in general to his return to God the Father and his subsequent exaltation, enthronement, and coronation. And what is particularly of note to me in Barth's development of doctrine is that in the midst of all this, he deals with the topic called the obedience of Jesus Christ. Didn't think I'd get there, did you? The obedience of Jesus Christ, which is precisely our topic today. The obedience of Jesus Christ is what Bernard Lonergan called his meritorious obedience. All of this goes toward the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, his all-saving faithfulness, which are two insights that have totally transformed and revolutionized our message since around 2010 or so. What is particularly of note, then, is the subject of the obedience of Jesus Christ in between the Son of God's way into the far country and the Son of Man's homecoming is a stint on earth called the obedience of Jesus Christ. And again, that's what Lonergan called his meritorious obedience, and we're working off and have now, for, this is the third Sunday we've done this, from Thesis 15 from Bernard Lonergan's book called The Redemption. Now, all I'm laying kind of a foundation here before I get into the earnest part of the message Thesis 15, I'm going to repeat, from the book called Redemption. So far we're dealing with a radically Protestant theologian named Karl Barth and a Catholic theologian, although he was a maverick Catholic theologian, Bernard Lonergan. And so we're really taking from two sides of the sphere here. 
of theology. Here's the thesis. Redemption, he says, denotes not only an end, but also a mediation. Namely, and here's the features, the payment of the price, Christ the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners, our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood. We've dealt with these from lower blade data coming up to this upper blade data in our previous messages. And then next, his meritorious obedience. The power of the risen Lord and the intercession of the eternal priest. We've dealt with all those features except his meritorious obedience, which we want to hammer not only this week, but possibly next week and into 9-11, where I might bring you another 9-11. Hebrews 9-11, we'll see. So we've dealt somewhat with the themes all around his meritorious obedience, and today I'm going to deal with that important theme, and it's very important. And I remind you that this thesis was specifically chosen because of all the themes that are handled in it are in Hebrews, and because this thesis, along with copious scriptural documentation, which I call lower blade data, is a way to move forward in our study called Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Today we see Jesus, and we're face to face with him, in his perfect obedience to the will of his Father. For this theme, I refer you, and I seriously refer you, to the first two messages from our 2019 series called The Doctrine of the Mystery. Strangely enough, the Holy Spirit was already prompting this message. In the first two messages of The Doctrine of the Mystery, you find it on the website, on the first two Sundays of October in 2019, And these messages are extremely important. In fact, I was kind of amazed at reviewing them after preparing this one. They are important not least in that they are part of a run-up to this present series, which began February 5th, 2020. I'm kind of giving us a, a history up to our present time. In any case, we are face to face today with the obedience of Jesus Christ a topic that will occupy us for more than one increment of our study. The obedience of Jesus Christ is something that Paul said every thought must be brought to subjection to. Every concept, every theology, every philosophy, every ideology, every project, everything, every doctrine must be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Take that as a subjective genitive, not our obedience to him, Christ's obedience to the Father, which merited salvation for all the human race. That's why I like the word meritorious obedience. Christ's obedience, not yours. Christ's faithfulness, not your faith or your faithfulness or mine secured and merited eternal salvation for the entirety of the human race, everyone without exception. That's why this theme is important. So in case I lose you, 
at least I hammered that nail in. I'm going to start with Ezekiel. I love Ezekiel chapter 1 up into verse 2 of chapter 2. It's, it's a passage that constantly grips me. In fact, it's got a grip on me that never lets go. But in Ezekiel, God often prefaced what he was about to say to and through his prophet, Ezekiel, with these words. As I live, Ezekiel 5.11, for example, 14.16, all of which are extremely important because God says, as I live, if certain men of God who were once mediators of a kind were present in your country, I still couldn't save the nation by their intercession, as I live. So Ezekiel 14, 16, 14, 18, 14, 20. Ezekiel 16, 48, which moves into an area where God speaks about the restoration of Sodom and where he makes Egypt and Assyria his people. Ezekiel 17, 16, Ezekiel 17, 19, 20, 31. That's just a sample of times when God began to speak to the one whom he called son of man, which in that case means mere mortal man, Speaking to Ezekiel, as I live. And then he would say what he had to say to Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, to, the, to Israel, to the nations. So the emphasis in Ezekiel is on God as the living God. And that's the emphasis, whether you know it or not, in Hebrews. It's found in certain strategic positions in four corners of Hebrews, we might say, the living God, Hebrews 3.12, 9.14, 10.31, 12.22, and I have never been more aware, as I have been recently, including this morning, on my knees literally before him, that we have to do with the living God. The living God has life in himself in John 5.26. That means his essence, his intrinsic nature is life. And because he has it in himself, he gives life. He's the giver of life. He gives life to all things, according to 1 Timothy 6.13. Gives life to all things, even to things. See, there used to be this habit and it was something that the Romans practiced and something that the Christians refused to practice. If the Romans didn't want a baby that was born, they threw him on a dump, put him on a landfill, exposed him, and he died, or her. Didn't want a daughter? Expose him. Let him die. And what was beginning to really happen to draw people to Christ was that Christians wouldn't do this. As one writer that I was reading recently said, Christians would share their meals but not their sexual partners. And Christians had a different posture and a, a different way of being around them, especially when they went to their death in the arena. And it was something that drew the attention of people. Who are these people? They're people that are filled with life and not death. 
They have this way of being. And it was that and not mission that drew the most people to Christ in the first centuries. The church grew by what is known as patient ferment. Ferment, I think Alan Kreider is the writer that wrote about it. Patient ferment. It's like a seed that was planted. Jesus gave that parable. A man plants a seed and he goes to sleep. He doesn't know how it grows. He doesn't know. You can't say, is it church planting seminars? Is it witnessing? Is it blitzing? Is it missiology? Is it all the programs of man? No, we don't know how the kingdom of God grows. It grows first into the stalk, the shoot, then the corn, and then the full corn in the ear. And the man looks out, and he doesn't know how. That's how the church grows. That's why I've always hated church planting seminars, church planning seminars, and a host of projects and things that people get involved in in the church. It grows by a patient ferment as people live in this world in the Holy Spirit, under the influence of the word, like the word that you're hearing today. Now, the reason I said that is because in Ezekiel 16, God compares Israel to a newborn child that was unwanted and exposed to death, just born, kicking in its blood, one verse says, one translation says, kicking in its blood just left to die, exposed. Exposed at birth to die. The living God, the Lord said, I pass by you. He's talking to Israel. This is the most, possibly the most heart-rending passage of scripture. I pass by you. And saw you lying in your blood. Kicking like an infant. and Didn't know why they... Obviously, why am I here? Supposed to be warm and in a bassinet or at my mother's breast. And no. I'm lying on the side of the road, kicking in my blood. The Lord... The living God says, I passed by you and saw you lying in your blood. And I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. I said, live. Those who disposed of you said, die. I said, live. As I live... Live. Consider that. As I live, says the Lord. Live. When someone passes from this life, you know what they hear from God? Live, not die. Wisdom of Solomon even says, we think they died, so we have the services about them. We think they died, but to God they're living. God declares them alive with a life and a livingness they did not know before they passed from this life. The Lord goes on to say, yes, I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. Then he goes through the history of Israel. 
how he brought her up and gave her all this beauty. And she turned her beauty into prostitution. And he never stopped loving her. Never stopped loving her. Drew her back to himself. That's in Ezekiel 16, 6, incidentally. So the one who says, as I live, says, live. So what's he saying? Live as I live. Live with my life. In Christ, all will be made alive. With his life. I can't say that verse enough, and every time I say it, it has a freshness. It just doesn't go away. There's no expiration date on it. 1 Corinthians 15, 22b. And so what does God do? He commands life. What's his commandment to you? Live. How do you sum up his commandment? Life. He commands it. Now let me develop this a little bit because this is, this is innovating it might even require an artistic consciousness a little bit, but Jesus also said this, because I live, you will live also. The one who says, as I live, says live. The one who said, as I live, is Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus, who said, because I live, you will live also. Because I live in the risen power of God, you will live in the risen power of God. You will live with my life, my livingness, my way of being. You will partake of the divine nature without ceasing to be human beings. Even as I took on human nature without ceasing to be a divine person. The Father has also given the Son to have life in himself. The Father eternally begot the Son, life from life, and gave the Son to have life in himself too. John 5, 26. That means life to give. Have you ever read the scripture that says he became a life-giving spirit? John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. Who? The sheep. They hear my voice. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. Ah, gotcha now, they say. First you have to hear his voice, then follow him, then he gives you eternal life. That's the order in John 10, 27 to 28. Okay, then what do you do with this? Everyone who is in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God. And all who hear will live. And all who live will come out, which means they'll follow me in resurrection. So that means that the great shepherd of the sheep that, God, that the God of peace has led up from the dead leads everybody up from the dead. Everybody hears his voice, including dead people in their graves, and as a result, hearing his voice, they live and they come out. But what about those who have done evil? Oh, we'll get to them. That's you. That's me. What about those who did good? That's you. 
That's me. The line runs through us all. Even Sly Stallone said that in the movie Samaritan to the little boy. Yes, I watched it. Because it was free. Anybody who pays for a movie now had to have their head examined. Now, it was actually free. I didn't steal it. The living God has made Jesus alive through his resurrection from the dead, and Jesus has become, as the last Adam, now a divine person and a divine man, a divine person with a human nature, is a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, who himself gives life. So as the good shepherd in John 10... He says of the sheep who hear his voice and follow him, I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. John 10, 28. In John 5, 25, Jesus says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. But then he goes on to say, all who are in their graves will hear and all who hear will live. That means everybody hears the voice of the Son of God, and everybody hears the voice of the Son of God say, live, not die. Yahweh the Lord God says, as I live, you live. Imagine if the Lord came up behind you and he said, you, you turned around and he said, live. Then he laughed. I think the Lord laughs a lot. I think he likes to scare us with a loving surprise once in a while. I think he likes to shock us into joy because we get so wrapped up in ourselves and schedules and fears and they're arming the IRS now. You, yes, live. Okay. They're cooking up more viruses in labs. You, yes, live. China won't even let our ships in port in the Solomon Islands this morning. Seems they're expanding their kingdom. China's expanding their kingdom among socialist ideologues in the United States of America. Should I live? Yes, you live. You don't fear. You live. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I am that life. Live with that life. As I live, live. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, not my faithfulness. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, 
I live. With what? With his life. Now, I'm doing this slowly on purpose because you know why? Everything I've said so far, every little sentence, every little partial sentence has been a nail that the Lord gave me to pound into your stream of consciousness for you to either let stay there or pull it out and leave it if you want. There's two ways to preach the word of God. You can come up to an exposed infant lying and kicking in her blood and say, I don't know what to do. Or you can say, live and let God give life. The one who lives with eternal life and livingness commands life. The one who lives with eternal life and livingness commands life. God commands life because as Jesus, the son of the living God. Who do you say that I am, Peter? You are the son of the living God. Because obviously you have life in you and your life is as the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. You know, if any scripture is going to be interpreted properly, flesh and blood can't do it. What I think in my flesh and blood, I abandon in my study. I don't want to bring that to you. My words are spirit and life, Jesus said. What? My words are what? Did you say spirit and what? Life? So his words convey spirit and convey life. They say live, but they bring life. The flesh profits nothing. Your fleshly wisdom, mine, and the wisdom of the greatest theologian or philosopher or guru who ever lived has nothing as an ability to interpret the word of God. I love what Jesus said. To the Sadducees who tried to engage him in a debate against resurrection, he says, God is not a God of the dead but of the living. And then he said this, and it's not picked up in every translation. Some good ones get it. He said, because all are living to him. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, they're dead to us, says the Sadducees. And Jesus said, nope. All are living to the living God. Again, the living God whom Jesus called the living father. He called him my living, the living father in John 6, 57. The living father commands life. 
How about this one? Psalm 133.3 came in sort of like a locomotive into the station when I was looking at these things. Talking about Mount Zion. It says there on Mount Zion, which we speak of also in Hebrews 12.22 and following, we've come to Mount Zion. We have come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, a myriad of angels, the spirits of justified people made perfect or complete. To Jesus, the mediator of a new and better and everlasting covenant, and to the blood, the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than the blood of Abel. We've come to Mount Zion, and it says in Psalm 133.3, On Mount Zion, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. He commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You have come to Mount Zion, where the Lord commands the blessing, live forever as I live with my life in resurrection, starting now. You have risen together. You are risen together with Christ. Seek those things that are above. And that's all about Hebrews, isn't it? We look above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty because the Son of God went into the far country and became an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And having purified sins, he ascended to the Father and sat down because the Son of Man had a homecoming. The one who lives with eternal life commands life, life forevermore. Again, and maybe we can turn there. John 5, why not? John 5. And this is from the HCSB. You'll find that often in the notes, cause, and you'll have these notes, although not too soon, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe later, probably later. HCSB means Holman Christian Standard Bible in parentheses, it's my favorite English translation right now. A concise one, not expanded. The, their mirror Bible is brilliant because it expands. It's like a targum. It has lots of notes in it. It's wonderful. The Amplified Bible is excellent. But as far as just a condensed translation, I like the Holman Christian Standard. Here it is, John 5.25. But I'm going to emphasize certain things. Bold print means volume. I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I don't know about you, but that's now for me. I was dead in trespasses and sins, dead to God, knew about him, Went to rituals about him, did lots of stuff, said prayers around him and beads and all the rest of it. I didn't know him. I was dead in trespasses and sins. Then on January 23rd, 1972, the Lord said to me, live! And I did. Did I understand? No, I was kicking in my blood for years after that. I didn't know what I was doing. I was faltering, flailing going every which way to try to find my way. And guess what? That hasn't ended. (laughs) 
I'm still in this world. I'm still in this flesh. I'm a sinful man. It's amazing to me how sinful I am. I find that out the, the older I get. It's amazing to me how sinful I am. It's amazing. And you know what? That's um, even more amazing that he reconciled me. To himself. I assure you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has also granted to the Son to have life in himself. He did that eternally when he begot the Son, but he did it again when he rose, resurrected the Son, and made him a life-giving spirit. In verse 7, and he has granted him the right to pass judgment. To whom has he granted the right to pass judgment? To you? To me? No. He has granted me the right to love with a love that covers a multitude of sins. He has not granted me the right to pass judgment. The Son of Man was granted the right to pass judgment, and he received the judgment due us in himself on Calvary's cross. Look at verse 27. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. He's speaking in the third person, but he's talking about himself. This is the son of man who's about to have a homecoming through the cross to the father. Then he says, don't be amazed at this. Because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life. But those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. Uh Uh-oh. Now, here's the thing. Don't be amazed. That means don't be afraid. Why? Because there is nothing to be feared in these words of Jesus. For his words are spirit and life. Fleshly wisdom plays no part in their proper interpretation. Preacher after preacher, evangelist after evangelist, men and women have tried to interpret these words by dividing humanity into the wicked and the good. And the wicked better be scared because they're going to hell when they're raised from the dead. And the good, and they kind of do this without, without physical motions, they go, and the good will receive life. To which I say to them, thank you, reverend. I mean, reverend. Um, and that was a good message, but Balaam's ass had a better one. Reverie rent. Okay. You say, why would you make fun of other preachers? Because I'll tell you why. The church is the biggest reason for the decline of our nation right now, not the evil masses. The failing church with their flailing, failing message. And we have a message of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And we have become 
ambassadors of that message. We are the Atla Apostolate, the apostolate on the level of our time. So I will do what Elijah did till the end of my days, and that is mock the messages of the false prophets. I never knew what this meant, but I'll say it anyways. If you don't like it, you can lump it. What the hell does it mean to lump it? I don't know, but you can lump it. All right. I'm going to get serious again. Jesus has a commandment from his father, and the commandment is life. In other words, the result of his obedience to the father is life, not life for some, but for all, for all are living to the living God in Luke 20.38. Consequently, all who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and live, That includes those that have done wicked and those that have done good. They will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. They will follow the shepherd because my sheep hear my voice, but what if all the dead hear his voice? They must be his sheep. Yeah, but do they follow him? Yeah, they come out of their graves. That's following him in resurrection. They will all be given life because the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep has been led up out of the realm of the dead by the God of peace and has become the great shepherd of the sheep, meaning that now he is the shepherd of all human beings everywhere at all times. Hebrews 13, 20. They will all be given life. For those who may be concerned about faith, they will all believe. If you're concerned about people believing, will everybody... Yes, everybody. All will come to faith according to Ephesians 4, 13. And it's hard for every knee to bow and every tongue to say, Jesus is Lord or Yahweh is Yeshua, unless you've believed... And some people will believe upon seeing as others believed without seeing. And blessed are you if you believed without seeing. Thomas believed seeing the resurrected Christ. But Jesus didn't say say to him, oh, your faith is useless because you saw me first. No, he said, you saw me and you believe. That's faith. But blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. So consequently, all will be the sheep of the great shepherd of the sheep, whom the God of peace leads up from the realm of the dead. They will all be given life. Those who have done good will be raised to life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, live. You come up before the Lord. Here's your judgment. I was judged in your place, so I judge you justified, and here's your life. Now, he might not have to say that to you. You just come up in life, but then he might have to say that to somebody who hasn't heard this message. What's the difference? You 
hear the voice of the Son of God and live, or you hear the voice of the Son of God and come to a resurrection of judgment where you hear that you're justified because he received your judgment in your place in John 5, 27. It's all life. In Christ, all will be made alive. It doesn't say in Christ, some will be made alive and the rest are going to hell and perishing in death or in a life of death, a living death forever and ever and a yeah, yeah, yeah. You believe so much in hell, why the hell don't you go there? You wouldn't want to. You want other people to go there, don't you? That's why you cherish that doctrine, isn't it? You want people to go there. Who? People that you think should go there because you don't like them. Don't tell me there's no hell because the guy that did that to me back then isn't going there. Come on. That's right. I know you can't stand it, but you'll be embracing each other as brothers. Those who have done good, a resurrection of life. Those who have done wicked things, those who have done good is every, everybody's done some good thing, whether they know it or not. Usually they don't know it. When did we do this to you? When you did it to the least of these, my brothers. You didn't even know you did good. Everyone has done some good if you've lived long enough. Everyone has done some wicked. The line runs through us all. So the good receive life. The wicked, those who have done wicked, receive a judgment unto life. So all are made alive in Christ who is the resurrection and the life and who bore the judgment that we're going to hear about at the judgment seat. We've all done some good. We've all done some evil. Some human beings have done more evil than good. And others more good than evil. But the doing of good does not lead to eternal life. Despite what the teacher said in Romans against Paul. Those that have done good, life everlasting, those that have done evil, tribulation and anguish. Well, there's, there's some truth to that because we reap what we sow in this life. But we don't receive eternal life by the doing of good, nor does the doing of evil lead to eternal death because Jesus tasted death, the wages of sin, for everybody. Jesus' obedience unto death, therefore, the death of the cross, in Philippians 2.8, in which he experienced death for everyone, resulted in life for all. In the resurrection of the dead, all shall live because, have I, have, have I to say it one more time? In Christ, all will be made alive. And this has become reality because Jesus obeyed the Father's command of life. The one righteous act, also known as the obedience, hupakoe, of the one Jesus Christ, in Romans 5.19, led to life and justification for all. So Romans 5.19 says, just as by the disobedience Parakoes of the one man, that's the representative man, 
Adam, the one man, that's the representative man, Adam. The many were constituted as sinners through the disobedience of the one. So by the obedience, hupakoes, of the one representative man, the second representative man, the last Adam, the life-giving spirit, the many, hoi polloi is what it says in the Greek, the hoi polloi. Today we have politicians, and they think of themselves as the rulers, the high and the mighty, and you are the hoi polloi. What's your name? Hoi polloi. Or as they say in Vermont, they don't say hi, they say hoi, hoi. If your name is polloi, they say hoi polloi. I love being part of the hoi polloi because the hoi polloi were constituted as righteous through the obedience of the one true king, Jesus Christ. I like that idea. Now, I'm going to close with a little dialectic, a little battle that I have with a very highly respected exegete whom I highly value and respect, and his name is A.T. Robertson. Here in Romans 5.19, the interplay of the one with the many, the one, Jesus Christ, the one man, Adam, the first representative man, the one, Jesus Christ, the second man, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15.47, the second representative man. Does the sin of Adam fall to all the human race. His sin came to all men, says Romans 5.12. Then why doesn't the righteous act of Jesus Christ come to all people? Because people want to give more credit to Adam than they do to Christ and be more shocked about sin than they are about righteousness won by Jesus Christ. Strange thing about humans, we humans. I identify as a human, by the way. You may disagree. I won't tell you where this happened, but I'm going to tell you where. This is why we need the word of God, and the next generation needs it, why we need our kids to be taught and armed with the spiritual armor. My sister told me that her daughter is working at a school. I'm not going to tell you where, and you'll never guess. But the school, the elementary school has cat litter in the kids' bathrooms. You say, why is that? Because some kids identify as cats. I'm, that's, she said, this is serious, this is true, this is real, this is sickening, this is, I'm not kidding. And, I went. and then my other sister said, that was Sandy, and Becky said, can you imagine Fred, our grandfather, who was a janitor, going in <laughs> to clean that bathroom? And I said, things have changed a little bit in the past couple of years. So I'm identifying as a human being today. My pronoun is I human being. So all human beings benefited by the obedience of Jesus Christ. Just as all human beings came, sin passed upon all human beings. Righteousness passed upon all human beings through Christ. Now here's, here's where I have my dialectic 
which is a friendly argument and a conversation. A.T. isn't around to defend himself, so that's why I keep it friendly. Contrary to what A.T. Robertson wrote in his treatment of Romans 5.12 through 18 or so, where I was reading, the many, as a descriptor of people affected by Adam's disobedience, Romans 5.19, does not have a different meaning from the many when it describes those affected by Jesus' obedience. And that's where these guys fall down. A.T. Robertson, Augustine, Jacob Arminius, the Arminian doctrine, all the way up through history, they assume, no, the many, for Adam's sin affecting the many, that means everybody, but Christ's righteousness making everybody right, that many is different. There are two different manys, they say. So he says that Romans 5.19, where it says the many are made or constituted as righteous by Jesus' obedience, he said that doesn't have the same, it has a different meaning than the many when it describes those affected by Adam's sin. And he bases his, the distinction on Romans 5.17 when he speaks of they that receive the gift of righteousness. So he says, see, it's only they who receive the gift of righteousness versus all men affected by sin, but those who have righteousness are those who receive the gift of righteousness. And it sounds good, and I bought that line for most of my pastoral career. And he says, again, it has a different meaning from all men in Romans 5.12, where it says all men, meaning all people, receive death. Death passed upon all men, meaning all humanity, all human beings. Whether you identify as a human being or not, death passed upon you. If you identify as a cat, death still passed upon you because, got news, you're human. Sorry to break that to you. You're a human. Meow. So then, I mean, even Catwoman identified as a human. But anyways. Someone says, now you're downplaying the seriousness of the problem. Oh, no. No, I'm not. That's a serious problem. What happened to parents? I'm a cat. No, you're not. All the parent has to say is, no, you're not. Oh, instead, oh, okay, you're a cat. Don't use that room. Just use that box over there. But I'm 11. That's okay. You're a cat. All right. I'm sorry. This is just, see, that's a terrible distraction in my mind right now. I, uh, the spirit is grieved, so I'm laughing to try to not be so grieved. So in Robertson's view, all men only applies to those who receive death through Adam's sin and disobedience, but only a select number receive life through Christ's obedience and righteous act. And I'm closing with this now. Evidently, therefore, Robertson... And many others predicate the difference on the human reception of the gift. They make the issue the human reception of the gift. Personal faith, maybe, 
receiving or the act of human reception of the gift. But Paul is not saying that only some people in the human race will receive the gift of righteousness in the final analysis. He is rather emphasizing that those who do receive this abundance of grace, as Romans 5.17 also has it, and the gift of righteousness reign in life by one Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Those who receive and understand the gift of righteousness begin to reign in life rather than having life reign over them and roughshod over them and be reigned over by sin. That's the difference. Robertson and others would be well served to consider Romans 5.19 in tandem with Romans 5.18 where there is an equality, an absolute correspondence of equalities and equal of the many with all. And we've developed that many, many times before using Mark 10.45, Matthew 20.28, 1 Timothy 2.6, along with Romans 5.18 and 5.19. And so on this subject, D.B. Hart, H-A-R-T. He has a Bible called the New Testament. Strange title. He translated the New Testament and called it the New Testament. But he's got a few pretty good notes in there. And on his footnote on page 198, footnote R, talking about Romans 5, 18 and 19, he says, The strict proportionality, and I've quoted this before, of the formulation, however, is quite clear. Here and in the surrounding verses, just as the first sin brought condemnation and death to absolutely everyone. No question about it. So Christ's act of righteousness brings righteousness and life to absolutely everyone. Whether intentional or not, the plain meaning of the verse is that of universal condemnation annulled by universal salvation. Oops, there it is. So here the thought. This is what it means to bring every thought into obedience to Christ. A.T., you've got a thought. You took it from Augustine. Augustine, you passed it on to Arminius. Thousands of evangelical preachers today say the same thing. Priests, teachers, witnesses, men and women who represent Christ or say they do. The thought is that life is only for those who believe. Life is only for those who receive the gift. Life is only for a certain few as opposed to the many that were affected by sin and death. That thought has to be brought into subjection and captivity to what? The obedience of Christ, which merited salvation for all. The obedience of Christ, the subject I brought up today, the subject in Lonergan's thesis and in Barth's treatment of reconciliation, is of such importance that every thought must be brought into obedience, into captivity, literally, captured to the obedience of Christ. 
I'm saved because I believed. No, you're saved because of the obedience of Christ and his faithfulness, his faithfulness, his faithfulness unto death. That little thought you had is quaint and cute and evangelical, but wrong, dead wrong, and fatally wrong to those who want to live. Here's another guy, George Hunsinger, from a book called Disruptive Grace. I like the title. I know Mark read it. He said, the biblical literalists following Augustine cannot take passages literally. In other words, it's got to be literal about everything, but they can't take passages literally when they include the word all for some reason. That's not literal. Beginning with Augustine himself, the revered Saint Augustine, it has been said that all in passages like 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all human beings to be saved, does not mean literally all, but only all under some sort of heavy qualification, such as all manner and classes of human beings. So here the thought brought, communicated by theologians from Augustine to Jacob Arminius to Robertson and the majority of evangelical exegetes in our own time, that thought got to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, the meritorious obedience of Christ, whose obedience merited righteousness for absolutely everybody. I'm going to skip a little few things because I had a lot more prepared. I'm going to skip a few things. But one more verse I want you to wish you'd turn to. This almost winds it up anyways. While human beings are infected with sin and death through Adam... And only some are made righteous and have the gift of life in Christ. That thought has to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. His faithful obedience as the mediation of redemption. His faithful obedience, getting back to that original thesis, is the mediation of redemption of all of humanity. So it's precisely at this juncture that two major insights intersect. Two major insights. Intersection. Two major insights intersect right here for tetelestai to telestai phalanx. One, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. Two, Jesus Christ's all saving faithfulness or obedience. Over and against the notion of salvation only through individual personal faith or individual personal good works. And so this is what Jesus meant when he said in John 12. This gets us to an inclusio. 49 to 50, my translation from the Greek text. I've not spoken on my own initiative, but my Father who sent me has given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. I have a commandment from my Father. His commandment is eternal life. 
In other words, the father says, son, I have one commandment for you. You have life in yourself. Go and bring life to all. And Father, I thank you that your son's visible mission in history ended with Tetelestai. It is finished. Eternal life is now for all. That you raised your son from the dead and now in the power of a risen life, he makes intercession for us, which simply means he keeps that salvation real for us throughout this time. Father, we wish you would send your son back. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if he doesn't, and when he doesn't, we know it is your absolute will that we remain in this agona, in this arena of contention and struggle. And we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glories that shall follow. So grant us the grace to look not at the things which are transient and passing and temporary, but at things which are eternal. And have us walk by faith and not by sight so that we may perceive the change of situation that you have wrought in your son, bringing the whole human race from enmity to reconciliation so that we can go forth with that good, that very good, that very, very good news. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, our all-saving Savior, Jesus Christ, who is also our Lord, our King, our great Archpriest, our Redeemer, the lover of our soul, our friend, our older brother, who took our discipline. Amen. Thank you for your kind attentiveness. And we'll see, see you face to face again next week, Lord willing. And there will be some online messages on Wednesday also. Hi, Charlena. Good to see you.